One Hope Church. Um, we are continuing our study through the book of Acts. Uh, we're working straight through the book. And so last week we had a, a week off as uh, we took some time to go away together um, to Gainesville. We have a, a friend with a lake house up there that is so kind to let us use it and for us to really uh, spend some time together in fellowship and also to dig in uh, together as we were seeking the presence of God together, um, reading A.W. Tozer's book, uh, The Pursuit of God. And if you didn't get a book and would like a book, please let us know. Uh, we have a few copies. If we run out, we'll just get more. Um, it's a good good book for each person to have and, and to read and to be challenged by. Um, so we're going to continue our study in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 11. Uh, beginning in verse 19, we we'll just go through the end of the chapter, so not very many verses this morning. But let me begin, I really uh, feel the need to, to set a scene for you this morning, because as, you, as we just read this passage this morning, it seems like, oh, well, that's some nice information, that's some good things to hear. Um, it's a, it seems like a little bit of a, um, well, this happened and this happened and this happened, and okay, that's great, and moving on to more exciting things in the book. Uh, but this really is, there really is a lot of deep, wonderful uh, truth here for us this morning that can be applied. So I encourage us to slow down and to, to dig in and to see what is here for us this morning. But I need just to give us a, a brief overview and reminder of what's happened at this point. Because at this point in history, um, Jesus has come to, to live among us, fully God, fully man. You know, God in human flesh. Um, to live a perfect, sinless life, yet experiencing many of the trials and difficulties that we experience. And he went to the cross for the purpose of giving us redemption, to pay for our sins, to take down that separation that sin had caused between us and our Creator. He had risen from the dead. He had established that he truly was the Messiah. What that means is he truly was the Anointed One, the Christ, the King. And that's how Luke basically finishes his Gospel of Luke as Christ is the King. And then he begins the book of Acts as he's talking about the history of the church and he gives the mission that the King gave for the church. And the mission that the King gave for the church was for his disciples to go into all the world and to be witnesses. It's beginning in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so what we've seen throughout the book of Acts is this progression beginning in Jerusalem at Pentecost, where uh, the Spirit of the Lord comes powerfully among that first small collection of believers. And then at this time, there are Jewish people or converts to Judaism who had come from all over the Roman Empire, all over the world at that point, to Jerusalem to, to worship. They would have come for Passover, and they would have stayed through Pentecost. So many of them would have been there for the crucifixion of Jesus, and now for this event at Pentecost, where they are hearing these you know, average people from Galilee who, you know, yes, um, by some standards would be educated. I mean, they're multilingual, so you have to have some um, you know, intelligence for that, right? Uh, so they're multilingual people. But God gives them the ability to speak in all of these various languages. And so while the common language that everyone would have spoken was Greek at this time, it would have been like, you know, English is in our country today. And many people, you know, go, you go throughout the world today and, you, and usually in most places you find someone who can speak English, right? And because it's the dominant, you know, number one language. So at this time, the dominant number one language is Greek. Yet these Jewish people who had been living in, in Egypt and in you know, what's now Turkey and in Syria and these other places that have come to Jerusalem are hearing the language in the tongues of where the, they are from. Oftentimes the tongues in the land that they were born into. Many of these people had already even forgotten or had not learned the Hebrew language of their ancestors. And so they had their, even their own synagogues where the, the word was translated, the Old Testament had been translated from Hebrew into Greek, um, and they would learn and study the scriptures in Greek. But yet they're hearing the word of God, and this is a great testimony to them that what is being told to them is true. 
And they said, aren't these men just, you know, average Galileans, yet we hear them speaking in all these different languages? And so there's this great conversion that happens there as the church is accelerated. And now there's a move from there to Samaritans who are half Jewish, half Gentile. There's the Ethiopian eunuch that we find in Acts chapter 7, um, who Philip preaches to, who then takes the gospel back to Ethiopia. You remember a church in Ethiopia well long, long before there was ever one in France or England or Scotland, anything like that. And so now, um, yet despite all of that that has happened, the nationalism that the apostles had grown up in, even though they had spent three years with Jesus, their nationalism still has in their mind that when they're supposed to go to the uttermost parts, and even Jesus in the Great Commission is very explicit. When he talks about going to the nations, it's actually, you know, go to the people groups, go to the various ethnicities, And yet, in their mind, for many of them, this is still only for other Jewish people dispersed throughout the world. And it's not until what we saw a couple of weeks ago in Acts chapter chapter 10 and 11 is is kind of that, that blinder taken off. As Peter is praying, and this vision comes to him with Jesus speaking to him, rise up, Peter, kill and eat. And it's all these things that were deemed as unclean, all the things that God had used in the, in the Old Testament as part of a teaching tool to show that God is holy and that humans as humans were not holy, to show the difference between clean and unclean and that we needed you know, someone to make us clean because we are not clean before God. But then, and what's interesting is Jesus had already, we see back in the book of Mark, had already made all foods clean. But Peter still is saying, no, I won't do it, Lord. And three times it has to be shown to him. Three times it has to be shown to him. And that's when the men from Cornelius' house, the men from the Roman uh, centurion Cornelius, come and say, please, Peter, come and tell us. Come back to our place and tell us about the Messiah. And, you know, at this point, to this point in his life, not because of anything that the Old Testament had taught, but because of the customs of his day, the traditions of his day, and the fervent nationalism that he grew up with, Peter had never been into a Gentile's home up until that day when he walked into Cornelius' house. And so there's a very powerful lesson there that even though Peter was a true believer, even though that he walked three years with Jesus, he still had this major blinder in his his eyes of of who God loved and who who God could save. And so with that, Cornelius and many others come to know the Lord. And then back in Jerusalem, the other apostles and other believers, they call Peter and they say, wait, What is this that you've done? Because we've heard that you went into a Gentile's house. Now, of course, their focus should have been, hey, we heard lots of Gentiles have believed in Jesus. But instead, their focus was, wait a second. We heard you went into a Gentile's house. What are you doing? Have you lost your mind? But when Peter explains and gives testimony of what God has done, they start to get it. They start to get it. My contention for you today is like we might look at that today, most of us being Gentiles, and go, well, I can't believe they thought that way. Well, what other things do you think? And, and does Jesus sometimes look at us and go, I can't believe they still think that way? What is it that are your blind spots and your, your barriers to seeing as God sees? To see holiness as God sees holiness. To see sin as God sees sin. To see people as God sees people. These are our challenges for our lives. Let's pray and then we'll jump in here. At Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank, you for, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have to come and to meet to you, dear God, and to be in your presence. And please make your presence known to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Make it known to us as we worship together as we sing your praise, as we study your word together, as we are challenged together. Lord, let it be known 
that you are here with us. We know that is true, regardless of whether we see it or understand it or not, but help us to see it, help us to understand it, help us to experience it. And we thank you that you love us so much, dear God, that you spared no expense, that you spared no cost in providing for our salvation as you gave of yourself and you gave of your best, your son Jesus, who died for us and rose again. May we know your power this morning, dear Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen. We begin in verse 19, and it says, uh, Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of the Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. So what we have here is a simultaneous work of God because, you know, these believers from Cyprus and Cyrene had not yet heard about everything that happened with Cornelius and Peter, but yet they start to feel compelled. You know, wait, this can't be just for our people. This has to be for all the Gentiles as well. This has to be for others too. You know, the, the truth of Jesus um, being applied is coming to the forefront. Because they, they did know the instruction that Jesus had given. And so they began to, to act according to that command in a more complete way. They had been partially obedient to this point, but now they're becoming more fully obedient. And this is one of the things that we have to acknowledge and understand even in our own lives that oftentimes, you know, knowledge comes before practice. You know, Derek mentioned this earlier, you know, when we were singing about, you know, oftentimes we, we know what is right. We know what is true. We know what we should do. But yet so often we, we fail to put that into practical reality, the spiritual reality. We have to act and, and live upon that truth. But notice it says that the power of the Lord was with them. And so if we are to accomplish anything of eternal value, the power of the Lord must be with, within us. You know, the spiritual battles are not won in the flesh. Spiritual battles are not won with the flesh. They're won in, in the spirit. And so it has to be from the power of the Lord. But far too often times we're trying to do the things for Jesus, but without Jesus and without the power of Jesus. And because of that, there's a failure in our acting. Because merely physical things cannot accomplish the spiritual things of God. It has to be along with the power of the Lord. But a great number of the Gentiles believed and in turned to the Lord. And, it, and it's interesting that many of these Gentiles had already been prepared. Many of them were actually already converts to Judaism. They had already you know, come to believe that, that all of their Roman gods were false. You know, they could see that, hey, well, these are just the Greek gods renamed. And, you know, we saw what happened to the Greeks. And, you know, what is this, you know, what is this all about? You know, we have all these multitudinous gods and you live in constant fear of not pleasing the gods. And some tragedy coming upon you. And so they've seen a, a more excellent way in believing in the true God, Yahweh. Now, you know, that's a segment of these Gentiles. There are probably some other Gentiles that were still just steeped in, in their, you know, believing in multiple deities, their polytheism, that came straight to Jesus without much of a transition, you know, in between. Um, but this place at Antioch, we'll talk more about it as we go on, but it was a, it was a, uh, a strategic place in the Roman Empire. At this time, it's the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome itself and Alexandria in Egypt. And so it was their gateway to the, to the east. It was extremely important for the Romans, for the Roman Empire, to have this, um, this place. Antioch is called Antioch of Syria because there's lots of Antiochs. Uh, they're you know, kind of like, you name, you name your common 
town name. You're like, oh, well, we've got one of those in this state and one of those in that state and one of those in that state. Well, Antioch was kind of like that. So this is Antioch of Syria, which is currently in, in modern-day Turkey in the southwest part of the country. Okay? So this is a, a strategic place for them. So let's read in verse, begin back in verse 22. When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy, and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. That's just awesome. So now the church of Jerusalem isn't so much questioning God's work among the Gentiles, but is supporting God's work among the Gentiles and is, is beginning to care about that. Their, their shift of priority is, is changing. Their ministry that had gone from you know, kind of the single focus has now become you know, much more dynamic, multifaceted. It's, it's, it's caring for many more people in, in many more places. And so when they hear about God's work in, in Antioch, their natural thing to do is to, to send someone that they can trust and someone with some experience, someone with credibility that they can use to help strengthen and to build this new church that's forming in Antioch. And so they send Barnabas. And we'll, as we'll talk about him, we, we understand that he is a, a, great, uh, a great person for this job. It says that when he saw the evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy. Filled with joy. Because for someone who's enraptured with the Lord Jesus, someone who, who loves Jesus, nothing brings more joy to someone who loves Jesus than to see other people falling in love with Jesus, becoming his disciples. Nothing brings a greater joy than that. And so he's filled with joy, and it says he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. That's one of the reasons I believe that they sent Barnabas in particularly because he had this gift of encouragement. We, as as we, we read about him and, and see about him, he was you know, actually called son of encouragement. It was like a, you know, it's, it's his name, basically. His name is basically encouragement. I mean, he's the right person for the job because people who are new in their faith need to be encouraged to stay true to the Lord. And that's what he wanted to see. And then notice it says... Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and strong in faith. And many people were brought to the Lord. Now that's a legacy to have. I mean, that's written in the scriptures for time and eternity of what Barnabas was like. Says he's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, strong in faith. Now that's something to have written on your tombstone. Just imagine your name there. Imagine your name there. A good person. Full of the Holy Spirit. Strong in faith. Wouldn't you like that to be on your tombstone? For that to be written? How powerful is that? How powerful is that? But, you know, there's other things that could be written on tombstones. Here lies old lazy bones. Did just a little bit for the kingdom. Here lies old divided heart. Always tried to love Jesus as much as he did the world. Here lies old grumbler. Can find something new to complain about every day. Here lies old stingy. Always found a reason to keep 99%. And here lies old timid one. Okay with others going to hell as long as he wasn't embarrassed. I mean, those are strong, but let's be real. What's going to be on your tombstone? Let's be real about that. So it's much better to have something along the lines of good person, full of the Holy Spirit, and strong in faith. And no, that doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you didn't have your weaknesses. You know, you look at great people of faith throughout history, and, and oftentimes you find people who are very hard on themselves who are very timid um, about their, their, their perception of themselves, was oftentimes you know, probably lower than it should have been. You, know, you find people 
who uh, were doing great things but didn't really understand that they were. Oftentimes because their focus was more on Jesus than, because it, than it was on themselves, you know, which is what you want it to be, which is good and what is right. But what I'm saying with this is that we have decisions to make along the way of what sort of life we want to live here on this earth or what sort of legacy we want to leave behind. And I'm going to contend with you this morning that if you show, show, a person, show me a person who's striving to be obedient to Jesus and has a good attitude, and I'll generally be able to show you a person who doesn't have to worry about their legacy. Striving to be obedient to Jesus and has a good attitude, you usually have a person you don't have to worry about their legacy. It's about having a kingdom first perspective and then aligning one's attitude with that perspective. Because if Jesus is first in all things, and then I align my attitude with that and try to walk with Jesus, then you know usually things are going to work out pretty well how they should, right? But if I get distracted, if I get focused on the things of this earth, if my priorities become about building a better me and about building my own kingdom, then my perspective isn't going to be right. And along with that, the attitude will generally follow. And so we have to be careful in these things. And we can look to Barnabas as a great example. And we read more about him beginning in verse 25. It says, Then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. But both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large, large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. And that's interesting. A couple things here. Remember Barnabas and his personality. What is he? He's an encourager, right? And he's one who reconciles. He's a reconciler. He wants to see people reconciled between God and people and between people and people. And so what does he do? It's not surprising that he would go and seek out Saul. We know him better by his Greek name, Paul. He's already been converted. He's already had to flee for his life and go back to his home. But Barnabas goes and, and runs and finds him. It says, when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch, and both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. So you can imagine the excitement that Barnabas had about Paul. Because he knows and he sees the great impact and influence that Paul is going to have on the on the church and how he can push forward the mission of Jesus, right? How he can push forward the mission of Jesus. And so he's intent to find Paul, to help build him up, to train him. And so what, what Paul and Barnabas have here, especially for Paul in Antioch, they're there for a year. It's a year of on the job training, on the job training. And really when it comes to living a life that makes a difference in the kingdom of God, it's pretty much got to be on-the-job training. Yes, you can learn in the classroom. You can even go to, you know, you can go to a theological school. And you can learn there. But until you actually practice it in everyday real life, just that book knowledge isn't the real education. Isn't the real education. I'm always encouraging people, yes, you know, it can be good for some that are called and called to go and get more training and, you know, to go to a theological school and, and to dig in and to, to learn more. But, you know, I find that a lot of times people want to do that. They want to go straight from college to that. The problem with that is when they go from college to that, they don't know what they don't know. And therefore, they don't know what they need to learn. And then so they're there for three years, and then they get into ministry, and then they ask, well, what am I supposed to do in this situation, in that situation? And they didn't take some of the classes they should have taken. They wasted their time in other classes that they shouldn't have taken. And they came out of it still largely lacking the skills and abilities to minister to people as they need to. So a lot of times the encouragement is, Go in, you know, do something different first and learn what you don't know and then go and do that. 
then go and do that. Learn what you don't know. And then fill in those gaps. Um, but so too often we think that it's just about the book knowledge. It's just about the book knowledge. But when you start to experience, I'm sure in this year of life in Antioch, things happened that you know Paul was exposed to. He was exposed to people who were, you know, oppressed. He was exposed to people who had, you know, large struggles in their lives. They, you know, he would experience joy of seeing, you know, life come into the world and sadness of life leaving the world. And knowing how to minister to people in all of those different types of situations, stuff that only life can teach. That couldn't be taught just in an academic setting. But things that only life can teach. And so this was a training ground. And preparing them as you know, Paul and Barnabas would go on their first missionary journey together. Preparing them for that. So this year was extremely important in their lives. Extremely important in the life of Paul. But something that's going on here that I think we need to uh, keep in mind. Let's just read verses 27 through 30. And I've got two different ways that we're going to want to look through this. But it says, During this time, some prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up in one of the meetings and predicted by the Spirit that a great famine was coming upon the entire world. This was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius. So the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea, everyone giving as much as they could. They did this, entrusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. These are some great verses, and I I do want to go back and and keep in mind, again, our, our overall context of this new church being in the Roman Empire and being in the third largest city of the empire, and just the mindset of the Roman Empire. What is the mindset? That they are building a kingdom that is going to last for thousands of years is there in their minds. Okay? They don't have any anticipation of ever being conquered. The Romans have conquered everything they've sought to conquer to this point. And they anticipate their kingdom going on and on and on. And at oftentimes, whoever the Caesar is, is viewed as more than just a king, more than just a man. He's viewed as God. And it was as a God, a God, because again, they're polytheistic. But their allegiance could be only to Caesar. And to claim that there's another king is treason. And that's why you're going to have so much deep persecution of these who are now called Christians, little Christ, and in a sense, little kings. Okay, but with the idea that they are following a different king, that Jesus is their king, and Caesar is by them by definition not their king. Because how many kings can you have in your life? How many kings can you have? Ultimately, you can only have one king. Ultimately, you can only have one king. It's, I've been thinking about this a little bit in terms of also, you know, dual citizenship. Because the word of God instructs us that if we are followers of Jesus, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And that that is to be our first priority and our first allegiance, that we are citizens of the kingdom of God and that Jesus is the king of over that kingdom. And so I, I find myself personally distressed when I see followers of Jesus, even sometimes, you know, legitimate followers of Jesus. And it seems like at least around this time of the year and prior that the affections and the talk and everything is so much more focused on, you know, who our president is. There, there's more talked about a pre, the president of the United States than there is talked about King Jesus. Now, that shouldn't be true for believers because we should be able to put some things in perspective. And whether your opinion is good, bad, or indifferent on any particular president of the United States, past or present, understand that the first followers of Jesus 
were living under Caesars. Now, find me a good Caesar. You're hard-pressed. But you don't find their writings fully, uh, full of obsession about who the Caesar is. What you find them fully obsessed with is who their King Jesus is. And sometimes we've got to step back and gain some perspective on eternity. And, and that's not to say that these things aren't important. Obviously, there's an earthly situation that's coming here that is going to be shaking for a lot of people that they need to be prepared for. And God gives them a special grace to know ahead of time what that is. And this famine that's going to come along upon the Roman world. Okay, so yes, the here and now and these temporal things, like they have a place and they have a, an importance, but they have to go way down our list of what we care about. But we also need to understand that though these people, who are, especially these Gentiles, who are coming to faith in Jesus, that while they are still citizens of Rome, they still have their Roman citizenship, their true citizenship is in the kingdom of God. And yeah, they might be dual citizens, but there's a big time priority on the kingdom of God. And they're willing to die for that kingdom. And, they, and many of them will die for that kingdom. And so their priority of being a citizen of Rome has diminished greatly, greatly. And I think that a lot of times we need to hear this because nationalism, sometimes disguised as patriotism, but nationalism can creep into the church at any point in history. And I think sometimes creeps in today into the church, into where our affections become greater for our nation than they do for our eternal King Jesus. That can't be. That just can't be. That's a misplace of priority. Misplace of priority. So we have to keep things in the right order always. It's kind of even like this. I mean, you know, just a very basic thing. In a family, you know, a husband is to love his wife and his kids and to sacrifice for them and, to, you know, all those things, right? But who's higher than wife and kids? Jesus. Who's higher for the wife and mother than her husband and for her children? Who is supposed to have that number one spot? Jesus. It should, you know, if you're, on, if you're the spouse, if you're on the other side of the equation, it should not hurt your feelings if your spouse says to you, I love you, but I love Jesus more. That's what you should want. And the reason you should want that, I'm going to tell you now, when I love my wife best is when I love Jesus most. When I don't, when I don't love Jesus most, I don't love my wife very well. And I don't love my kids very well. And I'm not willing to sacrifice that much. So what we should be doing, both you know, in our relationships, is pushing the other person to Jesus more. Pushing the other person to Jesus more. And in our church, we got to push each other to Jesus more. And when we see one another starting to have the affection for the things of this world or taking a higher priority than Jesus, we got to put on the brakes and say, whoa. Yeah, politics are important, but they ain't that important. Yeah, your career is important. It's not that important. And put things back in the right order. Sometimes we need somebody to love us enough to look at us in the eye and say, you know, you got, a, you got some things flipped upside down. It's about time to flip them back over. You got to love us enough to say that. Sometimes your spouse needs to love you enough to say that. Sometimes your friend needs to love you enough to say that. You got some things out of order and they need to get put right. Jesus has got to be on, on top. Jesus has to be first. So that's something I want to I, I just... In everything that's going on in our nation today, we, we have to say, we have to prioritize. Because where is your true allegiance? Where is my true allegiance? Has to be King Jesus. Has to be. We're going to be true to him. If we really believe that when he died on the cross 
and he rose from the dead, that he conquered sin and death, and he established an eternal kingdom. We really believe that, that in practical, everyday life, we've got to meet up to that spiritual reality. We've got to live in that spiritual reality. But now again, we see here, I believe, the influence of Barnabas on the church. When we're first introduced him in Acts, Acts chapter 4, what was he doing? He had just sold a piece of land, and he came and laid it at the feet of the apostles, all the proceeds from it, all the money from it. He laid it at the feet of the apostles, and, you know, do as you see fit. Okay? That's where we found him. And so now, when Agabus gives this prophecy that during the reign of Claudius, it's fulfilled during the reign of Claudius, but there's going to be coming this great famine upon the entire Roman world. That they had this in their minds, it seems like they have in their minds that those who are followers of Jesus in Judea are going to be the ones that, that are potentially going to suffer most. Of all the other believers, they're going to be the ones to suffer most. So they strategically, you know, everybody gave what they could and trusted their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take to the elders of the church in Jerusalem so that that could be distributed when the time came and the needs of these people could be met. It was preemptive, but you see the influence of Barnabas's generosity, that he's a generous person, influences the church that is there towards greater generosity, right? That's powerful. So, Because some things really are caught more than they're taught. Yeah, I'm sure he taught generosity, but somebody can teach generosity to a group of people all they want. But when people see that person in their generosity and see them live a lifestyle of generosity, that's something that can be caught. A lot of what we have in our spiritual lives is more caught than taught. You know, because you know, we, we know, okay, we're supposed to be encouraging, but when you're around a person whose gift is encouragement, it makes you want to encourage others. You know you're supposed to be generous, but when you're around somebody whose gift is generosity, you know, you tend to loosen your own strings, pocket strings a little bit more, Right? When you're around somebody, you know we were supposed to tell people about Jesus, but when you're around somebody who can't stop talking about Jesus, who is very effective in their love for people and the sharing of the good news of Jesus, it's like, hey, I want to share Jesus more. Hey, I want to share Jesus more with other people. A lot of things are caught more than they're taught. There's another lesson here that I think keeps in mind is that each one, everyone gave as much as they could. Now, what does that mean? I mean, it seems like there's some sacrifice going on with that, right? You know, that it's given as much as they could. There's some, there's some sacrifice, some self-sacrifice going on here. But there's something, another thing there that isn't, I think it's implicit. That those who live below their means were able to give more. We see that? As you give as much as you could, that those with below their means had the ability to give more. And that's, a, that's an important, I think, an important lesson for us because, you know, we all have a tendency, you know, not we all, but majority of us in our culture today, we have a tendency to live up to our ability, right? Or, and actually in our culture, we have a tendency to live Above our ability. We're living on next month's or next year's money. And so when a person has $30,000, they tend to live on $30,000 or somewhere between thirty and thirty-five. And then when they get $50,000, they tend to live on somewhere between fifty and sixty. Then we get $100,000, tend to live somewhere between $100,000 and $120,000. And you see how it goes. It doesn't change. You know, we have in this, this in our minds, well, if I just had 10 or 20% more money, then I wouldn't have any financial problems. But a lot of times the problem isn't the actual dollars. It's the problem is the one using those dollars and spending those dollars, right? I mean, that's just reality. Guilty, guilty as preaching, okay? Guilty as preaching. That's just reality, for us, But if we live below our means, when those times come, and there's these opportunities where our generosity can make a great impact, we can be ready for it. 
and ready to do that. And so that's just a challenge to try to, to look at, you know, for all of us to look at our budgets and to say, well, how can we live more below our means for the purpose of being more generous toward the kingdom of God? And sometimes it's not, you know, like this great sum of money. I was talking to um, Jaime down in Mexico um, over the weekend, and they have a radio station there, and their signal is strong enough to get the mountains where they are. I mean, this, this, they've got this little, like, shack that has their radio gear in it, um, and there's this little antenna, uh, antenna on it, but that antenna happens to be at 9,000-some feet above sea level, right? So that's kind of the strategic advantage is it's on the top of this mountain, you know, going out, you know, to the, around the villages and everything around them. He's like, okay, but if we had a stronger transmitter, then we can get all the people in the valleys too. Okay, we can get all the people with our FM station, radio station that we have, and give the gospel to so many more people if we have a, a stronger one. It's like, okay, well, what, what's, what's the budget for that? Well, we need about $6,000. We need a, to buy the equipment, it's about $6,000. Okay, and you look at that and you go, well, $6,000, I mean, that's a nice chunk of money. But it's not like, what, $6 million or something like that. You know, it's not some huge sum. And yet you're talking, you know, a couple hundred thousand more people can have access to the gospel and Christian teaching and encouragement and those things through this small investment. And, And the question that I have for, you know, we have a lot of people... You know, just talking very much in general in terms of fo- true followers of Jesus in our nation, we have a fo- of many people who should have the means that when they, they hear that, because of their income levels and all that, they should have the means when they hear that just to go, I got that. But it's our lifestyle that inhibits a lot of times the ability to say, I've got that. It's not the income that was the problem. It's not the inputs, but the outputs. Because we, we, we want to live up to the level. And we can get caught up in just, you know, the, the marketing and materialism and everything else that's in our world. And lose sight of where we can make a bigger impact for the kingdom of God. So that's just an encouragement, a word of encouragement there. That in this coming year, well, we're in it now. It's January. But to try to, as you go throughout this year, hey, how can we better live below our means so that we can be more generous? And that's a lot of what comes up up with everyone giving as much as they could. Because I believe that as they went from that, there were some changes in lifestyle among these believers so that they could have more to give in the future. That those who were able to give a lot said, well, what can we do to be able to give more? And those who didn't have much that they were able to give, well, what can we do so that in the future we can give more? And that's the challenge. That's the challenge that we have for us. I think that being part of this church in Antioch at the beginning would have just been an awesome experience. It would have just been amazing. So, I mean, imagine you're part of this church. People are coming to know the Lord. Barnabas and Paul are there preaching and giving encouragement, okay, that, that people are being generous, that people are being encouraging. That'd be awesome, right? That'd be awesome to be a part of. I saw, you know, three things. What are the three things that this church would be known for? It'd be known for being encouraging, for being generous, and for being missional. Because this church is going to be the key church for sending out you know, missionaries to the world. That they're the ones that are sponsoring that first missionary, the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. They're the ones praying and sending out and, and doing. So they're encouraging, they're generous, they're missional. Don't you want to be part of a church like that? Well, there's nothing that keeps us from being that church. Why? We have the same Jesus, same Father, same Holy Spirit. Everything that was available to them really is available to us in the Spirit of God. And, you know, God has already, in a small church, He's given us so many opportunities. He's given us so much to be a part of. I mean, there are people from this, that have been part of this church in the past, who are now, you know, 
in Bolivia, in Israel, there's other places throughout the world, other states in our nation. We support a team of 30-some people in Mexico that is going every, practically every day, at least six days a week, sharing the gospel. We're part of helping build a, a school for girls in, in Tanzania. You know, all that's coming out of a little tiny church in a basement with not that many resources. Supposedly, not that many resources. But we, we can't be looking at it that way. I mean, we have a great God. And if we as his people are encouraging and generous and missional, there's really no limit. There's no limit. But we need to be praying that we will be those encouraging people. That we are a positive church. So we're not a church of complainers. We're a church of encouragers. That we're not a church of misers. But we're a church of generosity. That we're not a church that's just inward focus. But that we're a missional church always looking to reach out to others and to send out to others. You know, and sometimes, yeah, that costs us. Yeah, I mean, it'd be awesome. Some of the people that, you know, have... have you know, move to other cities and to other places in the world. Yeah, it'd be great to have them in this room this morning. We'd love to worship God with them this morning. But we say the calling of God, the missional calling of God on their lives is more important than the temporal fellowship that we have now because we're going to get to worship with them for all of eternity around the throne of Jesus. So yeah, there's a cost there. We also have to be praying in that, Lord, send us people to train. Lord, send us people to build up. Lord, send us more people that we'll be able to send out. But also, Lord, we have a, the nations are in our city. Send us people to reach those people. Send us people who will reach the nations, the ethnicities, the languages that are in our city. Because the world is here in Athens, Georgia. And we can't lose sight of that. I think sometimes we can be so focused on these other places and other things, as we should be, but we also have to pay attention and wait. The person that I'm talking to, and I shared this one in advance, I'm going to share it again with you this morning, because it's got to be in our minds and our heads. I'm sitting there checking out all this stuff for our you know, thing to go to Gainesville, for all of us to hang out, which was awesome. And who's the lady, the young lady that's there doing the checkout? has lived here for a year and she's from Nepal. And when we're talking about, you know, hey, what we're doing, oh, you know, I talked to my parents, grandparents, you know, I'd never really heard anything about, you know, Christians before. And in our village, you know, nobody has ever said anything about Jesus, you know, she was talking about the holidays, Christmas and, and these things. We've never heard about these things. Nobody's ever come and told us. Well, yes, there have been missionaries to Nepal, but apparently hadn't gotten to her family. Hadn't gotten to her family. And, but here's my bigger question. She's here, surrounded by people who are followers of Jesus, lived her for a year, and has anybody taken the time to know her and to share the gospel with her? And, don't t- and the language certainly isn't a barrier, because her English is perfect. But for a year, could she live in our city for a year and not hear the gospel? That to, that to me is on like level of tragedy, level of tragedy if she could be here for a year in our city and not hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Without a follower of Jesus trying to be her friend and to love on her and to care about her and to introduce her to our Savior, we can't let that happen. We can't let that happen. For that young lady. Can't let that happen. And so this is what it comes down to. A church that's encouraging. A church that's generous. A church that's missional. That sees the mission in its own city. Because the world is here. You know what Antioch. You know what? They're going to send out Paul and Barnabas. To the other places. But because this is the third largest city in the Roman Empire, people from all over the place are in Antioch and coming for, to, to do business and to leave and going here and there. 
And so it's strategic in so many different ways. And we have that opportunity here in Athens, Georgia, to be strategic with all the people that are coming here and with the people that we are sending out. We have the best of both worlds. God has put us in this place for this purpose. And we need those who will come alongside and say, yes, let's build the church of Jesus here and now in this city. For the purpose of the nations. For the purpose of the people groups around us. Not so that we can build something and say, look what we've done. No, but we say, look what God has done and look what he's doing through it and who he's reaching. That's our vision and our purpose. Sometimes we lose sight of that. Sadly, sometimes we lose sight of that. But let's be committed that we won't allow one another to lose sight of that. That we will fulfill the mission that Jesus has given to this church. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your love for us. We thank you that we can come here this morning to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the one true king who died for all, that those who believe in you, Jesus, would have life and have eternal life. As we take that bread and that cup this morning, we give you thanks and we say, Jesus, please, First, we just say, thank you, Jesus. And then we say, please work in us and among us and change us and make us who you want us to be. In your name, Jesus, we ask it. Amen. I was reading my kids last night the story of the ten lepers um, and how Jesus healed them all. He healed all ten of them. And there was one who came back to say thank you to Jesus. And we have an opportunity this morning when we take that bread and we take a cup. That is us coming back and saying thank you to Jesus. We haven't forgotten. We remember you. Remember what you've done for us. We remember the cost of our salvation. And we thank you. So the scripture instructs us if you know Jesus as your Savior that you're to take this. To remember him. But before you take it, there's the need. There's the personal need that I have before that bread touches my lips. Before that cup touches my tongue. That I... Make sure, Lord, is there anything in my heart that needs to be exposed before you? Anything that I need to confess before you? Anything that I need to have right before you? It's not a matter of my salvation, but it's a matter of my fellowship with him. And that nothing would hinder that. And so before you take that bread and that cup this morning, be sure to say thank you and be sure to say, Lord, cleanse me. Cleanse my lips, cleanse my heart, cleanse my mind. Show me anything that isn't pleasing to you that it would be done away with, that it would be like the refuse thrown away. I wouldn't go back into the garbage can to pull it out, but it would be over. Free me, if you're, if you're entrapped by something this morning, that you would be freed from it. Ask it in Jesus' name, and it'll be yours. Amen.